welcome to The Rob Burgess Show. I am, of course, your host, Rob Burgess. On this, our 195th episode, our guest is Ruth Ben-Ghiat. Ruth Ben-Ghiat is a historian, educator, and commentator on fascism, authoritarian leaders, and propaganda. She is professor of history and Italian studies at New York University and an advisor to protect democracy. She writes for CNN, other media outlets, and her latest book, Strongmen, From Mussolini to the Present, which was published by Norton in 2020, examines the authoritarian playbook illiberal leaders have used for a century. Her Substack newsletter, Lucid, examines threats to democracy and how to counter them. Follow her on Twitter at Ruth Ben Giat. And now on to the show. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to do this this evening. I appreciate it. Sure. Yeah. I just finished uh, listening to the audiobook version of your book uh, seven minutes ago. <laughs> so okay. I made it just under the wire. I've listened to every word, though. <laughs> so it's really, uh, it's great. Uh, and yeah, it's uh, we'll get to all, all the contents of it, of course. But uh, yeah, go ahead. And uh, just to start us off here, would you mind just introducing yourself for people who don't know who you are? I'm Ruth Ben-Ghiat. I'm a professor of history at New York University, and I write a lot for the media, and I'm the author of Strongmen. Yes, excellent book. Uh, very engrossing. Um, and an important subject, and, and will continue, I think, to be timely going forward, and certainly has been. So um, what, I, I guess, what drew you to this subject in the first place? Obviously, Trump you know, of course happened, but, you know, you obviously make a lot of parallels throughout history and, and kind of what sparked your interest in this subject, first of all. Um, I, I grew up in a, in a beautiful seaside town in California, uh, Pacific Palisades, which wouldn't seem like a place where you'd start thinking about uh, grim dictatorships, but <laughs> it was a place where a lot of famous um, intellectuals um, took refuge from Nazi Germany, like Thomas Mann and composers mm. and people. So I came to know about these people, and um, I was just very curious what it meant to go from Berlin to the to this seaside town. So I started investigating them, and then at UCLA, I took a seminar on like these exiles, and so. Um, I decided to go to grad school and focus on, I was going to do Germany, and then I switched to doing fascist Italy. But mm. this is how, this is kind of how it got started, because I didn't have any family connections to uh, any fascist, any, anyone affected by fascism. So it was this kind of improbable geographic mm. thing. Right, Yeah. <laughs> I can I can see how that would be a bit of a maybe a contradiction on the face of it, but um, like you said, there were people that you were growing up around that had been through it, and um, I, I want to talk a little bit about the you go the subtitle of the book is uh, was it Mussolini? It says Mussolini to what is it? To the present. To the present, right? So why did you choose Mussolini as the beginning? Um, obviously you had to narrow the scope somehow, right? So you, you kind of focus in on these case studies throughout history that, uh, you, you talk about, you leave some examples maybe that other people might leave out. You put, you, you know, you, you kind of have to sharpen the lens a little bit to, to get what you're saying across. Why, why did you choose Mussolini and how did you 
choose not to talk about certain other uh, rulers throughout history. Uh, I'm thinking of, you know, I was listening to your description of these strongmen and I was like, you know, that's kind of Kim Jong-un, that whole yeah. North Korean dynasty thing. But then that's a little bit different. That's more of a family thing, too. But I don't know what I'll let you explain. But yeah. So to, so for that question, um, I did have to limit it somehow or it becomes like an encyclopedia. And right. I am a historian of fascism. I wrote two books on fascism. So I decided to focus on mostly right-wing authoritarians. And mm -hmm. I wanted to show the through lines. So, you know, what happens when fascism and Nazism, uh, you know, implode, like in World War II. And then I show how many neo-Nazis and neo-fascists went to Franco Spain, then they go to the military juntas and you know, Central Latin America and on up to Berlusconi in Italy in the 90s and 2000s, who brings neo-fascists into the government and rehabilitates the right, which is he's like a um, he's a precedent for a lot of things Trump does. Mm -hmm. So so that meant that and, and there was one other reason I, I wanted to look at people who wrecked a democracy um, or or a state that was that had democratic elements. And that meant that I wasn't going to look at people like North Korea leaders because it's handed to them mm -hmm. or um, China, where you you take over in an already closed system. So that's mm -hmm. that's why. So Mussolini, he he always gets a short shrift with compared to Hitler. And there's very good reasons people focus on Hitler. But Mussolini was the one who actually kind of wrote the authoritarian playbook um, because you know, he was there in the 1920s and, and he's important for our days because he was actually a prime minister in a democracy for three years before he declared dictatorship. And it was this big experiment he was doing because you had in Russia, you had Lenin who died in 1924 uh, and had a personality cult and so did Mussolini. But Stalin doesn't come in until 28. So Mussolini's the one in the 20s who's like, inventing all these things you know mm -hmm. he's persecuting the press he's doing propaganda and and uh, a story i talk about is you know sometimes we think that mussolini copied hitler but it was the opposite and mm -hmm. hitler had this huge man crush on mussolini and he was constantly writing to him and trying to get his autograph and trying <laughs> to make him his mentor because hitler was very frustrated because he couldn't get into power he mm -hmm. had his butch and then it didn't work and he went to prison and Mussolini didn't want anything to do with Hitler. He thought he was a loser. So it, it so I tell the story through the book of their kind of tormented, you know, relationship. And then eventually the tables turn. Um, but that but Mussolini was the pioneer for the authoritarian playbook. So that's why I started. Mm -hmm. I think a uh, interesting through line in all your your kind of you, you talk about the different eras of all this and. I think an interesting through line is that even though the media changes, uh, mass media itself is really important to the story. I mean, it doesn't seem like it. I mean, Mussolini, obviously, you said he, he laid down these, uh, you know, archetypes that others followed uh, for the century that followed. And uh, I, I have to think that, you know, radio, uh, newspapers, uh, social media now, of course, t television, um that all figures in greatly. And, and I don't think that these strong men would really have the hold over people they do without it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. In fact, you know, when we think about, because of course there were tyrants in other eras. And right, so right. the thing that makes 
the authoritarian um, to, to have a modern authoritarian state, you need mass society, you need mass media, because propaganda depends on uh, repetition and saturation of, of, you know, the mass media, it needs mass media to work, and then mass surveillance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for that, you need mass transportation, you need a whole infrastructure that comes with modernity. And the the media is really interesting. So, so the core of the book is, just for your listeners, it's um, these tools of rule, this playbook. So I have propaganda, corruption, violence, the myth of national greatness, and virility, or like machismo. Mm. So you can open the chapter in propaganda and look over 100 years what stayed the same and what changed. So the media stuff's so interesting because like propaganda, uh, propaganda personality cults, actually, they haven't, the, the rules that govern them haven't actually changed at all from Mussolini to now. So for example, he, uh, the holder of the personality cult has to be like a man of the people or like an everyman. So they talk in very accessible ways and they have direct channels of communication to their people. So Mussolini had newsreels and, you know, Trump had Twitter. Um, but they also have to be above all other men. So they're the everyman and they're the superman. Mm-hmm. So they're like omnipotent, even diseases can't, you know, who that, that affect other men won't affect them or they'll recover quickly. Mm-hmm. So they have all of this and, and that's, you see how that um, fits in with the virility machismo stuff. Mm-hmm. So that's that was fascinating to me to see how, in in many ways, nothing changed. Although the tools that um, the media that diffuses the the personality cult obviously is different today. We have social media, but the rules of it haven't changed at all. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, yeah. One thing I thought was interesting uh, when you talked about how actually the repetition. Of, of like like you talk about like Mussolini like just the repetition of the phrases and the images it it, it kind of just creates a white noise and it almost works against itself at a certain point it's just it's almost too effective it's like people it's just it's always this white noise in the background now that's not really like a shock to the system the way it is when you're not constantly inundated with it and I think mass media has a lot to do with that so yeah and you know social media really in some ways it really helps um today's autocrats like putin mm-hmm. um modi etc because it accelerates that whole repetition and saturation and it also makes you know in old days somebody would listen to the radio or read in the newspaper and they're not interacting but today you not only consume the propaganda but when you share it or you make memes out of it you become producers of propaganda so mm-hmm. you help you help the government uh, a lot in that way. But there's also a flip side. I have a chapter on resistance, and I show yeah. how today resistors can, you know, stream the police knocking on their door, which we would never hear before, right? We would read about it in, in, in books of exiles. Like, oh, the police knocked on my door and I left. But now mm-hmm. you're in the room, you know, and people are live streaming on Twitter or, or Facebook as they're getting arrested. And this this uh, creates a lot of sympathy for resistors and a lot of animosity toward people like Putin. So it, it's a double-edged thing, social media. Absolutely. Uh, free Navalny, let's just say that. <laughs> Got to get that guy yes. out of there. Poor guy. But, um, yeah. 
but uh anyway yeah you were totally right and you and at one point i remember you lamented in the book that you know we don't even know all mussolini's crimes because they destroyed so many records and we don't we'll never know the true layers of corruption we only have like the accounts of people that escaped and and other you know kind of first and second hand things but we you know a lot of those i'm sure the fires they just threw they threw everything in a fire as they were running out the door and uh, yeah, we'll never we'll never know the the full scope of it. But you're right. Now it's like we can see uh, George Floyd, as you point out in the book, um, that you know that would have never. Of course, that happened. Uh, but you know, people could dismiss it or remember. I mean, how they reported it, you know, initially in that press release of how he died. It wasn't anything like what we saw in that video. Um, and without the video, where would we be? I think we know. And it's people have been saying this for a long time, but now we can see it. So yeah, it's kind of a double-edged sword. Social media does kind of help throw a light on that when it didn't get it before so yeah it empowers people and they become in a way citizen journalists or witnesses mm-hmm. to abuses of power and that's that's very that's that's been a huge thing and if you also think of um you know it's it's about holding people accountable and you're mm-hmm. able to document with your smartphone or if you think about me too um mm-hmm. and and how how people can come forth and um, about things that they used to stay silent about, which is also a form of holding people accountable. So, so it's no accident that uh, men like Trump are, you know, are, are, are they, they're, they take all the resources of the state to shut down movements like Black Lives Matter or to discredit Me Too because they are deathly afraid of them. Um, autocrats need people to be silent and subjugated. And uh, in the summer during the Black Lives Matter protests, Donald Trump said something always stuck with me. He said, if you don't dominate, you're wasting your time. Mm. Because that's his view of government is dominating. He's not interested in collaborating. He, he wasn't even interested in governing in the traditional sense. He was he was and this was something I think a lot of Americans struggled to understand because they only had democracy he, he was interested in making money for trump organization which is a classic autocrat corrupt thing you turn public office into private in a source of private income and then he wanted to spread hatred and keep us polarized because that helps him and you know his goals were not goals they had nothing to do with like good government and so that's why when coronavirus came he he just couldn't care less and he mismanaged it but uh, right. he's always on the def- they're always on the defensive uh, mm-hmm. that someone will discover their corruption, their sexual violence and all the other crimes that they commit. And so by nature, they're they're going to be very aggressive. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Oh, man. So much so much I'll <laughs> talk about in what you said there. But um, going back to something you, you mentioned earlier, the virility thing, I just I think that's a fascinating Strand, I, it, I don't get it. Uh, Putin goes shirtless. Mussolini was, uh, w- what was he doing? He was threshing or something shirtless. He's threshing with a, wheat. He's threshing stripped, wheat. He's, he's <laughs> stripped his shirt off uh-huh. on camera. Right. <laughs> yeah, I, I put the virility chapter because I, I wanted to take it seriously. It's really easy to just laugh at. Putin taking his right. stupid ice baths and mm-hmm. straddling horses and all the stuff he does without shirt on. And, and 
And he and Mussolini are the two bookends of this. Mm-hmm. And Mussolini really shocked people when he started doing it in the 1930s. He would strip uh-huh. his shirt off on camera, show his muscles. He would ski shirtless. He'd be in a tiny bathing suit in the summer. But I thought that talking about this masculinity, this hyper-masculinity was important. And I'm a historian by training, and I used a lot of political scientists. Uh, I found political science work very useful on corruption and mm-hmm. elites, how elites, you know, collude. But but they weren't they didn't really take the masculinity stuff seriously it's not something that they study and this is something i knew about so it and masculinity the the virility really hooks into the other tools because this hypermasculine man is also a man who uh gets away with things he he's above the law and so a lot of these guys, when they come into power, they're already uh, criminals. They have uh, criminal records or they're under investigation. And they have a glamour for some men and women because they're the man who gets away with things. Mm-hmm. And so this this connects to them. And they also use their body as a way of they, – they come to uh, – symbolize the nation's strength. Putin's very good at doing this. Um, And everything that they will be whatever the nation needs them to be. And so their body Mm -hmm. actually becomes very important. So Trump can't, um, I I wasn't, I I wasn't allowed to have the rights to uh, reproduce this for the book. So it's not in there, but Trump can't show his own body. So he borrows other men's bodies. And in mm. 2019, he tweeted, it wasn't even a retweet, it, it was from his account, <laughs> uh, personal account, uh, his head, mm-hmm. it's really grotesque, uh, mm-hmm. photoshopped onto Sylvester Stallone's body in Rocky oh, Three. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so this, you know, I even said it's grotesque, you can laugh at it, but it's also deadly serious. Mm-hmm. And so I felt like the whole virility chapter, I wanted to, to talk about that part of things. Oh, no, it's true. And I, I only laugh because on my way to work, there's a person that has a flag with Trump in another, I guess now that I think about it, another Sylvester Stallone role, uh, Rambo. He's he's Ramboed out uh, with the thing around his the, around his head and the, he's got machine gun. And I think in I've one of them, right, yeah, another one, he might be riding a dinosaur or something. But that, yeah, I, think, yeah. I have like a huge collection. In fact, I started, <laughs> I started a um, Substack newsletter called Lucid uh-huh. about like a month ago about uh, threats to democracy. And I talk about propaganda. I have, write essays, but I have live chat and I'm going to do one um, showing my vast um, collection of Trump oh, wow. propaganda. I have both of those. I'm sickly um, interested in that. <laughs> no, I know. It's like a weird thing. But it's it's important because these men know how to become the repositories of our fantasies. They're not my fantasies, right. but they're lots of people's fantasies. Yeah. So you have like Trump is John Wayne, Trump is Tarzan, Trump is, you know, it's endless. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rambo. So, and, and one thing I found in my research is that these guys... Uh, find fortune, they get support at, in times where society's gone through a lot of changes and they could be gender emancipation, racial equity, workers' rights, but also when male authority feels threatened. Mm-hmm. And when, like after World War One, with fascism, you had so many men who, you know, it were, were uh, disabled, etc. 
but they tend to be times when many men feel they're being eclipsed, like their status is getting lower. And so you can see here comes somebody like Trump, who's like a big guy and he's a macho and he is going to take up their cause. Mm -hmm. So they buy into that's where the dinosaurs and the Rambo and, and it's a fantasy, but it makes them feel better. Mm hmm. Yes, I guess so. I mean, <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, it's I. But I look at them and I don't see strength. I don't see, you know, I've never all these people you mentioned. I'm thinking through all of them, and I don't, I don't see any of them as as remotely strong, even objectively, outside of my disgust for their, you know, behavior or beliefs or whatever or what they did. I just don't see them as strong characters. So it's just interesting to me that people don't just immediately see through them and somehow it's like they get to project their own view of it onto them and they're like a blank canvas or something. And, and I, I guess it. that, yeah, go on. But yeah. Yeah, that's it. They, they are, they are performers and they're able mm -hmm. to, they allow people to project onto them whatever they need them to be. Mm -hmm. And, and in fact, they're not strong. In fact, their personalities, and sadly for us, Trump has the same personality as most of them. They yeah. are uh, extremely brittle and insecure, uh, mm. which is why you know they're very paranoid. And that's why they can't stand to have any rivals. Um, and they're very aggressive because they're so insecure. And so they're, they're weak. And so somebody like Putin, I, I say in my book where, you know, um, he, he managed to finally get in a position where the he got the constitution changed in 2020 so he could rule you know through 2036 he's already in his like late 60s and so it's his fantasy of ruling forever but he's become more and more repressive and you know protests against him are bigger and bigger and so he you know when they they lash out and do stuff like with Alexei Navalny this is a sign of weakness this is not strength Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, they're, they're afraid. They're afraid of somebody like that who can really uh, be a real rival. And so what they do is anybody who could be a viable opposition candidate and maybe run for office, they arrest them or they poison them. Um, and Erdogan in Turkey, you know, does the same. He's he's arrested hundreds of thousands of people. Mm -hmm. uh, so they, they are weak. And that's one of the messages of the book that we endow them with this strength, but they're actually weak, flawed, destructive individuals. Right. Yeah. And, and uh, I'm just thinking back to a headline I read the other day from Erdogan where uh, Joe Biden had re finally recognized the Armenian genocide. And then uh, uh, Erdogan was like, well, well, we're going to recognize the Native mm -hmm. American thing. It's like, is that really the best you can do? Oh, I know you are, but what am I? <laughs> that's what you got. Like. Yeah, that's the best. He, that's the best. And, and he's, he's busy. He's busy giving uh, Turks the fantasy of reviving the. Um, and, and I talk about this in the book. This, this was, I found this really interesting because I knew about the Mussolini case, but so these guys, um, I have this chapter like called a greater nation about like making the nation great. So on the one hand, they project this utopia, like everything's going to be better. I'm going to fix it. Like Trump said, but they also channel this nostalgia. And in fact, look at Ma the MAGA slogan isn't just making America great. It's making America great again. And the again is the nostalgia. So 
So all of them hark back to some, you know, they, this is the fantasy part. So Mussolini had actually the most solid, he had the Roman Empire, it's a long time ago, <laughs> like thousands mm-hmm. of years right. before, but he really used that, like they were going to yeah. revive the strength. And Erdogan is, is obsessed with the Ottoman Empire. Mm. And it's like a whole thing in Turkey with the reviving the Ottoman Empire. Wow. And and then each one has his own way, like Bolsonaro in Brazil is very frightening. He's constantly talking about the military dictatorship and he, mm. he's in the army. And like that was a better time when there was the military dictatorship. So Trump didn't have any of those things, but he his was like a vaguely a better time when whites, you know, ruled supreme and everybody else knew their places. Um, mm mm-hmm. So that's that was his version of it. But it's always right. making the nation great again. Right. Absolutely. And whether or not it was like ever that great in the first place for everyone, you know what I mean? It's like for who? Like great right. for who? It wasn't great for everybody. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's I think uh, you talked about this being a common feature. And I was thinking about Putin kind of it's almost make make Russia great again, you know. And, and like oh, you said, totally. he's allowed, uh, you know, statues of Stalin and Lenin and he was you know, Mr. KGB for a long time. And, you know, it, it was very interesting to me that. So if we just like take that as an example, OK, the whole MAGA thing, make nation good again. So that's the idea that they're hearkening to the past. And as I said, I knew about Mussolini and the Roman Empire, but right. then they they all do the same thing. It's so interesting. They're very, you know, they're, they're like this is over 100 years all over the world. Mm-hmm. And this is how I. I developed the idea that there is this kind of playbook because as with that example where they're all like reviving empires and stuff, they they all make recourse to the same things. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Absolutely. This is very timely. I wonder how it was for you to turn this book in not knowing how the election was <laughs> going to turn out. Uh, you know, I, I actually enjoyed this book a lot because for the same reason that I'm now enjoying, I, I have three kids, they're six, three, and now one, uh, and I'm now enjoying uh, getting to tell them about world events kind of with Trump in the past tense in a certain mm-hmm. way, and not that we should, you know, let our guard down in any way, but at least, you know, it's not like, oh, <laughs> I have to slog through till uh, my oldest one is 10. I'm definitely going to have to tell them about everything that's happening now. I've been kind of shielding them up till now, hoping it would turn out okay so I can do, like, the past tense version of everything, not like, okay, this is ongoing now. I know you have to learn about I world know. events. Uh, no, so. uh, <laughs> when the night uh, of the election 2016, I, um, I was... I covered the the whole election for CNN opinion. So I wrote, was writing op-eds. So I, all the speeches, all the debates, everything. So here we are at election night and I went to a friend's party. I took my laptop because, and I had prepared as everyone in media did, you had to prepare um, op-eds, at least drafts or uh, of either outcome. And everybody, of course, uh, thought, you know, that Hillary Clinton would win. And I took my daughter, who was a teenager, and all her friends were for Hillary Clinton. They had Hillary Clinton stickers on their laptops. And at a certain point at this party, I I realized with dread that he was going to win. I just knew very, very early. And so I told her that we had to go home because I, I had the the Clinton one better developed than the Trump one. <laughs> and she, I'll never forget just as a parent, cause you're talking about like 
Right. Uh, she she didn't want to leave. And she at first refused to leave because she didn't like what I was telling her. It was too mm -hmm. horrible to think that he could have uh, won. And so I had to kind of drag her out of there. And it was very hard to see her and her friends uh, being so disappointed mm -hmm. uh, like that. But in terms of writing the book, yeah, I had to I had to turn in the book in the summer. And I, I had time to write about the Black Lives Matter protests, but I didn't right. know what was going to happen. Yeah. Um, but Unfortunately, uh, the way these guys are and Trump's personality, I did, I had already predicted most of what he had done from mm -hmm. in 2016. I did a lot of op-eds saying what I thought would happen. And they, unfortunately, they, they came true. So I said that he wouldn't be leaving quietly if he mm -hmm. lost. Because it's an interesting thing for regular uh, Democratic leaders with a small d, you know, when you leave, you do something else or you work on your legacy, et cetera. But for men who um, are so weak and they need the adulation and the fame and the riches, um, it's like a psychological death for them mm -hmm. and they can't handle it. Um, and so they will do anything to stay in office and they do desperate things. So I wrote about I wrote about like this thing that's in political science to call it gambling for resurrection when people when rulers know they're going down and they do one last like crazy thing like starting a war or having a coup so mm -hmm. i wrote all that not knowing of course like what would happen and certainly not about january 6th i think that was like you said it was it was pretty predictable that he's never going to admit defeat and i saw a video of him the other day at like some buffet at Mar-a-Lago yeah. still like prattling on about it. Like, it's like, just, a, it's like a, a, a cru like a cruise ship entertainer now. Yeah. It's really interesting. Like, yeah. It's interesting. He just, he's like, where's the off button? Like, it's okay, dude, you lost. Like take the L and go home. Um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting how it's like with Trump's Twitter account, it was so, it was so, I didn't follow him on Twitter, uh, but I just, it, I felt so, oppressed by his just being on Twitter and having to know like it was going to be a headline every time he tweeted something. Now it's like that psychological floating stress that's always there is, is totally removed. And now he's out of office and it, it all, it, it doesn't seem like totally a bad dream, but I kind of stop myself sometimes and I'm like, did that really just four years of Donald Trump, that really happened? <laughs> like, like that actually, like for the, for the, when it, but when it was happening, it felt like it was going to be happening forever. And then these yeah. things happen and all you snap your fingers and it was like, wow, was that just all a dream? I think that um, where many people are exhausted and we also didn't have because of all the terrible stuff he did when he lost the election for that very long period from November to January 20th. Yeah, we we, we were not able to fully relax, well, relax at all, really, mm -hmm. and enjoy the fruits of of a wonderful thing that happened, which yeah, is very unusual in the history, in history. It's unusual that uh, a people get, they vote out an autocrat in the middle of consolidating his power. You mm -hmm. just don't see that. And so we did that and we did it in a pandemic with voter suppression, mm -hmm. with threats. And we didn't have time to celebrate that because of everything that happened. And we have we haven't really even digested fully January sixth, mm -hmm. um, but this this feeling that it was kind of uh, 
a, a kind of surreal, it seems surreal that we went through that. Um, for this Lucid newsletter, I'm interviewing, I have a series of interviews. I have an essay every week and an interview with somebody. And wow. I'm interviewing former White House correspondents uh, mm. who, under Trump. And I did Jim Acosta and this Wednesday mm. publishing um, Peter Baker from The Times. Oh, neat. And I asked them what it was like, you know, and how they're feeling now. And, you know, and they, they're exhausted, too, because they were under direct, you know, threat from 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 him as members of the press so mm-hmm. i think we're going to need a lot of time as a as a nation to recover from because what what we had was a very skilled propagandist um beating us over the head with his lies and waging psychological warfare and trump surrounded himself from the beginning with very scary individuals like roger stone and steve bannon who had decades of experience with psychological warfare techniques. Mm. And all of this was unleashed unto us. All the threats, all the, um, you know, getting money out of people, all of this stuff, uh, you know, going on was, um, it's a collective kind of, um, it can, people can build up a kind of numbness on the other hand, on one hand, but exhaustion as well. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, it's like I always try to tried to remind myself and still do that it that's not normal. But at a certain point, it's like I have to like, I have a life here. I have to I have to get about my day. And I, I think that's what they count on. Right. That's just the, the wearing down of people like that and just just rubbing out like any spark of like thinking it's yeah. not how it's always been. Yeah. It's a wearing down. And also, um, if you do speak out, you 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 know, you all of the trolls and haters that he encourages right. um, are, are also policing. And, and it's some people don't have the stomach to, you know, every time you publish something in a place like CNN where there's millions of people seeing it, you get all this hate mail. And so that's another way that over time, um, you know, p- criticisms of him can be, can be worn down. Um, right. Well, it's like self-censorship. Yeah. Too. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Self-censorship. And um, like I'm in a very privileged position because I'm I'm a tenured professor because people people mm. try to get you fired. Right. Uh, Absolutely. They, yeah. And, and I'm also at a private university. And so my salary isn't paid by public funds because that also make can make it harder. Mm-hmm. Uh, but. It, it it was uh, I think that I felt like everybody can. This is what I could do. I could turn my skill set um, into a warning that you know it can happen here, and that's mm. that's why I wrote the book. Um, that's you know I was prepared, and we talked about my background, how I got into studying fascism, but it was the shock of seeing Donald Trump holding rallies and doing loyalty oaths. Mm-hmm. And realizing it could happen here, um, that led me to write the book. Right. Um, I wonder how much do you see a parallel with, like, you talk about a cult, cult of personality, and I totally think that's an apt description, but what do you think about actual cult <laughs> parallels? Uh, you know, Jim Jones comes to mind, uh, you know, 
uh, down to the hair, even, and you know, <laughs> uh, with the with the sexual domination of people yeah. and uh, the whole bit, you know, and and the that the adulation and the special line to God and you know, it, it on and on, you know, the, it seems like. I don't know. It seems like there's a lot of parallels there, but I think you're right. There are, and um, it's also that QAnon. Oh yeah, absolutely. Which, has, which mm-hmm. is kind of in the Trump supporter world. Absolutely. It's this. It's this lure of a of an alternate reality, and mm-hmm. a reality that is seamless, where everything makes sense. And it's also like the lure of a, an in group, uh, a community, mm-hmm. and uh, you're in or you're the enemy. And some people mm-hmm. find that comforting. Um, and cults tend to be very authoritarian. Yep. Uh, and so they're, they're definitely, um, there's a reason the personality cult has the word cult in it, right? And Absolutely. I think, I think that um, the, new, the new part of this is the flowering of the conspiracy theories and the fact that people who are in government now, like Marjorie Taylor Greene and others, are adherents of conspiracy theories. That's very scary because that, yeah. that might have been going on behind the scenes before, but it wasn't something where people felt proud to make it part of their brand. That's, that's new and that's really mm-hmm. disturbing. Yeah. Well, I see it as kind of like, and I, I, I wonder how you see it uh, in that, you know, these uh, these leaders are very uh, personality based. They're they're kind of singular in, in that they kind of coalesce all around these strong men. You know, it's like these individuals. So I guess that a lot of their power is in themselves and, you know, other people that try to imitate them or like be in their mold or something. They don't quite get all the way there because they don't have the fanatical adulation or or connection that that the strong man that they're modeling themselves after has or, or a special relationship or whatever so i i I'm, i worry about of course and i think a lot of people do the next person that is like trump but a little less obvious and you know uses the ideas that he did but you know maybe does it and not telling all his crimes constantly on social media way you know and like maybe is a little smoother about it but is that person really going to, you know, they, yeah, they might learn from Trump and see what he did and try to imitate it. But he does have like a, it seems like he's a messianic figure to this loyal core base. And I don't see them, or maybe I'm wrong. I mean, I've been wrong about a lot of stuff before it happened, but uh, do you see that floating to someone else? Or do you think that they are so connected to him that they'll, they'll just follow him or his family, I guess. I don't know. But, I mean, he's the special case because, he came in like Berlusconi in Italy, whose personality cult survived everything, sex scandal with underage girls, everything, corruption scandals. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, Trump came in as this, quote, billionaire businessman, as a success story um, and as a reality TV star. And he came from outside of politics so that he came in with this incredibly like glamorous profile and this uh, not only this gave him, he's extremely skilled propagandist and performer, and he's very attentive to optics. He knows exactly what to say to people. He has no morals. And there are other people, certainly in Republican politics, who have no morals and would say anything. But they don't have his background of this glamour. He, you know, he has 
uh, all the women around him, you know, where all his wives are models and, and he had the Miss Universe pageant. And so he's always with like these, you know, hot women. So that's special to him. Um, and there is something about his presence that uh, leads people to, to, see, to see him in a certain way. Um, so there isn't anybody else like that. If you think of some of the people who are sometimes mentioned who want to be, you know, like Ted mm-hmm. Cruz has no charisma. Josh, <laughs> eh. Right. The, the, more of a threat is somebody like Tucker Carlson. Mm. Because he comes, you know, he's already a star. American TV. society likes stars. Yeah. Yeah. And he's an extremist and he knows he's smooth. Mm-hmm. Um, he looks smooth. But he also knows how to um, appeal to people and establish a connection with them uh, much better than somebody like Josh Hawley. Josh Hawley is, is, is quite intellectual and he's a little remote. He doesn't mm. have that um, people, you know, personality thing. Yeah. So that's been Trump's secret weapon. The whole mm. and the family man, because he has all the, you know, the, the others don't have that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah, I totally agree. Um, but I wonder how the fact that he, whether he'll, you know, of course he'll never admit it, but he lost, right? He lost by a lot. He's a loser now, right? And so his whole brand was winning. How does that affect the the brand? I mean, it seems like it shatters everything to me, or I would think it was. But some of the people, I, like I, I mentioned, the people I pass on the work, some of the other people I pass on work gone from, they took down their Trump 2020. They put up, a, in some cases, homemade, in some cases not, t- Trump 2024. You know, they're they're still in for it. They're up for more with the same guy, and they think he can win it all again. And the smartest thing and the most audacious thing he did was this big lie business, oh, where yeah. he because millions of people still think he didn't really lose, mm-hmm. and he he sowed the seeds. I mean, we had five years of this because he started. Yeah. You know, he he was. Um, he was preparing this election rigged stuff yes. in case he lost in 2016. Yes. And he wouldn't have done a January 6th thing. That was like a self coup to keep himself in power. But he mm-hmm. would have claimed that the election, you know, was rigged and invalid. Um, yep. So, so Americans had like all these years of this rigging elections business. And the, so that already happened. But for him to be able to, um, and then the victim cult, and this in the strong in the strongman book, Mussolini was the first. He's always the pioneer with everything. They yeah. have to be the victim. They take the hits for the nation. They mm-hmm. they have the enemies. And once they establish their victimhood, people actually get protective of them. And although they're very mm. powerful, they also feel that they need to save them. And January sixth was a, a a leader rescue operation. I, that's mm. how I see it. Um, by these like devoted followers, they were rescuing their leader, and and so he managed in this brilliant way to convince millions and millions of people that he might not, he really didn't lose, mm-hmm. and that presidency is rightfully his. So it's all about manipulating appearances, manipulating belief today. Um, so he knows he lost, and and the most shocking thing is that the Republicans are backing him up. 
I know. Um, they had an out. They could have discarded yes. him mm-hmm. and gone in a slightly different direction. And um, instead, they doubled down, and he still has an iron control of the party. And that's uh, that's not surprising if you study these dynamics like I do. Like if you read the book and you think about the durability of personality cults, it'll make more sense to you what's mm-hmm. happening. But it's still shocking in any logical universe. Yeah, well, it's like they think they can ride the bowl or whatever, and they can't. They never can. They can never stay on through the wild swings. Like, And they think they can, like, we'll just use this person to get our policy objectives, and we'll tolerate them, and they'll give us what we want, and we'll give them what they want. But it's like, it's never going <laughs> to be a two-way street with these people. It's a one-way street, uh, and they don't ever seem to learn that lesson. And, yeah, like you said, people go around them, go down for plenty of things but they'd never get to the top you know what i mean it's always the people uh around them that are that are dropping like flies it just it, it boggles the mind uh what the like psychology of somebody that that like a mike pence for example <laughs> like, yeah he, he's he, almost he, killed by by trump and talk about it that's very disturbing that's one of yeah. the most disturbing things because here's somebody who you know, he was put there because of the evangelical connection and, yes. and the Cokes, and he had, he represented many important factions for Trump. But he was Mr. Lackey. He put yep. up with four years of humiliation and his poker face. And then, you know, look what he gets for his troubles. I have no sympathy for him, but I wouldn't like him. No one deserves to be chased by a mob wanting to hang them. But then he's not speaking about it. And Mm -hmm. this is the moral failing of the GOP that if, if, if Pence spoke out at what happened to him and instead he's tweeting that, that the real danger is, is radical left, you know, the radical left Biden administration. And, and this is given what happened to him, this is just such bad faith. Mm -hmm. Um, And the, and the GOP right now, because of January 6th, they're on the defensive. And so they're, having a huge propaganda push to deny the violence of January 6th or say it was left wing because they were exposed as as a far right party. And this is really how I see them. Unfortunately, we've got only, you know, other societies have lots of parties. And so they have a far right party in other places, but they're only one of five or six parties mm-hmm. here when you only have two parties that, that really count and one of them has become a far-right authoritarian-minded party, that's a huge problem, and that's what we have now. I wanted to ask you on a different note uh, about your Substack. How is that going? I'm, I'm interested in Substack as a, as a format. How do you like using it? it it's good. I, I decided to start it um, with, uh, with, with, with Substack's cooperation um, as oh, a way of... Um, you know, because I've written, I don't know, probably a hundred op-eds, and mm-hmm. but um, it appealed to me as a way of writing um, essays that maybe have more history than many places would want. I my thing, as you see in the book, I like to look at what happened in history and then how it plays out today. What are the continuities? Right. So my first essay was "Drain the Swamp," and I talked about Mussolini draining the swamp and being a hypocrite, and Putin and Trump. Mm-hmm. And so I've been able to do different kinds of writing, and 
uh, on on the issues of threats to democracy. And my next one uh, is going to be called Why Do People Believe Liars About mm. Propaganda? So it's developing things that were from the book, um, but I'm also interviewing people, and I have found that really nice. Um, um, interv- I just ma- interviewed Mary Trump, all kinds of people. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah, and then doing live chats so that um, you can dialogue with readers. And, you know, this the, the newsletter phenomenon is a symptom of, like, our changing media environment where mm-hmm. – and also how algorithms increasingly determine whose stuff you see um, rather than your own interests. And, and so – I think that this idea of having direct um, a direct connection with with people who read your stuff um, that's not that's not necessarily possible if you write for CNN where they've uh, gotten rid of comments altogether because mm. there was so much there was so much hatred and they weren't productive. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm finding it um, gratif- very gratifying so far. Right. It's just a month old, but um, it's been good so far. Cool. Well, I'll definitely sign up. Um, but yeah, what are you working on uh, for your uh, next book? Are you, I'm sure you're thinking about <laughs> where to go now. Uh, but I'm, has, has Trump being out of office changed what you want to write about at all? <laughs> um, somewhat. I, I think I, I'm going to do some kind of short, very short book, much shorter mm. than Strongman, about democracy protection. Mm. Um, not really lessons learned from the Trump era, but, uh, you know, how the things I've learned from, um, and, and from reading other people and things that, um, are important values also like accountability. I don't know how I'm going to structure it, but Mm -hmm. that's, that's what it's going to be about. Great. Well, I recommend everyone to read your book. I really thoroughly enjoyed it. And uh, I always, I love history. It's my favorite subject, always has been. So I, I really enjoyed going through, even though you, <laughs> you talk about some terrible people, it was, it was incredibly, yeah. it was incredibly interesting. Nonetheless, I didn't, didn't, didn't know a lot of those uh, details. So I, I was and glad. It to ends on a hopeful note. Cause it does. Yeah. Let's not forget true. that. Yeah. yeah. I want to say that because it, there is a lot of like grim stuff sure. in it and uh-huh. it was not very fun to write part of it, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I wanted to end on a hopeful note with yeah. resistance and how we the lessons of history is that people they get through things and they they get rid of tyrants and um, things get better. Mm-hmm. Definitely, and you know the I, I was kind of thinking of that John Lennon quote. I'm going to butcher it, but it's like when you are violent against the state they know what to do with you but if you use like humor and wit and you know parody and, and all this you know the tools of the mind rather they don't know they don't know what to do and uh you kind of highlight some people near the end of the book that definitely fit that uh category you know i definitely think of uh, pussy riot and and uh yeah. rush in that uh kind of tradition so yeah i think that it really they don't know like they they don't like they're like i can arrest someone i can beat someone but it's like if you like you know make a you know clever remark or whatever they're not always sure about what to do with that or you know some kind of other piece of art that is you know a little harder to to pin down yeah that's really important and it gives hope to people um and some of the people i interviewed for the book are doing that exactly that kind of work using humor or um, like I inter- I interviewed uh, 
I also interviewed him, did a follow-up for the newsletter, Robin Bell, who projected onto Trump International. Yeah, yeah. And, he, and some of his things are, they're serious, but they're also humorous. So yeah. there are ways of, of um, getting messages to the public that are designed to energize people so they don't feel so hopeless. Oh, definitely. And, you know, if I can say anything good thing about those last couple of years is I, I, I felt much more protective of corny things like, you know, the, the First Amendment and, and, you know, things that you kind of take for granted when things are a little less uh, a state of emergency all the time. <laughs> uh, you know, and I, I definitely got complacent with certain things, uh, you know, growing up, you know, not having uh, one of these leaders uh, necessarily. Although, I mean, you could you could make an argument for, for different presidents, I guess, at different qualities. But uh, still, it's like it wasn't to that degree, you know, and it was like you I definitely during the Obama administration, I got kind of complacent on, on certain mm-hmm. things like that. And it's, you know, it's a little it makes you kind of reevaluate what's important when you think it could go away at any time because it can, you know, the like you said, it was a rare and, and uh, unheard of thing that that Trump got voted out most of the time that that just doesn't happen, especially when there is an election. They, you know, Putin has elections or he did, you know, <laughs> so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But, exactly. Yeah. So we can hold well, on to that. Yeah, definitely, for sure. Um, well, I've taken up almost an hour of your time, and I really appreciate it. And one question I always ask before we go is, uh, what music have you been listening to lately? Oh, I'm I'm uh, I'm a huge electronica fan. Cool. Um. So, oh gosh, I don't even know what bands I've been listening to. Um. Let's see. I don't have anybody in mind. Um, <laughs> yeah, and actually, listening to uh, music got me through um, the writing. Mm. Um, I listen to Bonobo a lot. I've been listening to Catronada, who's a Canadian DJ, um, Steve Lacey, um, a lot of German kind of electronic techno people like Ben Bomer. Mm. Um, uh, and back to like classic like massive attack um, mm. that kind of thing but i'm uh, yes many many evenings uh writing the book i i was kind of blasting electronica so <laughs> I, I continue to do that uh, is massive attack kind of like trip hop maybe though yeah is that yeah. okay That's yeah from, yeah they're from the, the 90s really yeah i I, I, remember, I think i had one of their cds i had them and portis head uh yeah that whole thing but yeah <laughs> i like them too so yeah cool. so that's my i kind of um i listen to jazz sometimes too but for writing i i um i i kind of stay with electronica it kind of energizes me i like yeah, it that makes sense uh can you listen to lyrics while you're writing i find that difficult sometimes i like no. to yeah, that's why electronica right. or, or <laughs> trance or it, it's yeah. unless I know the song very well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I that's why electronica is good. Um, oh, I know. Yeah, it's like the word making part of my brain and the listening yes. to words that people say. It's like they're they're fighting. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so cool. Um, well, I uh, again, thank you so much. I really enjoy your work. I've admired your work for quite a while, and I'm really honored that you took the time tonight. And uh, I hope that you come back again it was it was a lot of fun so yes i enjoyed it thank you have a good night i appreciate it
Join the Rob Burgess Show mailing list. Go to tinyletter.com forward slash the Rob Burgess Show and type in your email address. Then respond to the automatic message. Also, please make sure to comment, follow, like, subscribe, share, rate, and review everywhere the podcast is available, including iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Twitter, Internet Archive, TuneIn, RSS, and now Spotify. The official website for the podcast is www.therobburgessshow.com. You can find out more about me by visiting my website, www.thisburgess.com. If you have something to say, record a voice memo on your smartphone and send it to therobburgessshow at gmail.com. Include voice memo in the subject line of the email. Also, if you want to call or text the show for any reason, the number is 317-674-3547. Until next time.